This is an ABC podcast. I came into the autopsy suite and when I walked through the door, I literally bumped into the gurney that the body was on. And for a minute, I felt this little wavering in my knees. This is The Book Show, where today, Patricia Cornwall is taking us into the morgue. I'm Claire Nichols, and it is hard to imagine the world of crime fiction without Patricia Cornwall and her forensic investigator, Kay Scarpetta. Patricia will be my guest on The Book Show today, so stick around for that. But right now, the Australian writer Alex Miller is here with me. Alex is a two-time Miles Franklin winner, and at the age of 85, he has just released his latest novel, A Brief Affair. It's set in an old building, a former asylum, where our modern-day protagonist, Frances Egan, can feel a presence. Not a ghost, she wouldn't say that, but a presence. Alex, welcome to The Book Show. Thanks, Claire. I've seen you describe your novels as dreams. What do you mean by that? I probably meant that I don't usually have a plan. In fact, I never have a plan. There's a story that I need to get out of the facts, like finding a particular herb or plant among a mass of other plants. And they're all beautiful and they're all good for, uh, in their own way. And all these facts are there. There are far too many of them. And finding the story and simplifying it down is my, well, my delight, my job, the thing I enjoy doing, hopefully with some accurate observation of our common humanity. Well, I'd love to talk about finding the story of this book. I mean, what was on your mind when you sat down to write this particular novel? Yeah, I'd um, finished a memoir. Uh, it was quite difficult and had taken five years of research in Germany, Poland, Israel and other places, America and Australia. And I was sitting around the fire with my wife, Stephanie, and our daughter, Kate, who was visiting from Berlin, where she's lived for 12 years. And um, she said, so what are you going to do now, Dad? And somehow I said, I don't know, and I'm quite glad to have a break. So we had a general sort of family chat, and somehow it came up that um, we were talking about where Steph used to work when she was um, head of management at a university. And Steph's not someone to feel ghosts and worry about supernatural presences. Kate and I are much more like that and inclined to look over our shoulder in those chilly little places. But uh, Steph, no, Steph sort of generally sailed through without being troubled by ghosts. But on this occasion, she said, you know, that place where I worked, it was haunted. So we both sat up. Really? You're saying it was haunted. It must really have been haunted. So she told us a bit about the place, which is the, the setting, in a sense, for the um, profession of Francis. And... Um, She's a, uh, an academic, and oddly enough, she's in charge of the um, School of Management. <laughs> so this whole idea of the sort of haunted place, what is it that we feel? And clearly, with Steph, it wasn't something she was making up. Uh, it was, must have been a very strong presence, and she said she had to change her office at one stage because she just couldn't stand the feeling. So that's pretty strong. And these were the old cells where the uh, incarcerated nuts had been kept who weren't nuts. They were just people who weren't towing the line, who were off to one side a bit of the general run of the population. And most of them were probably decent people. And um, Kate then said to me, so why don't you write a ghost story, Dad? And I said, OK, I'll do that. And I felt a kind of sense of relief. Yeah, why not? Write a ghost story. It's good. It's not this heavy stuff I've been doing. So I um, found after sitting down to write the story to work out what I was going to do with it, where it was going to lead me, um, I realised, no, I'm not that interested in the supernatural. I'm not interested enough to work with it for a year or two. So it kind of dropped away from being a ghost story and became something else. 
Mm. Uh, which is what you've read. Yeah, let's talk about the kind of haunted place aspect for a moment longer if we can, Alex, because it is really interesting. In your novel, our heroine, Frances Egan, is a university academic, much like your wife, Stephanie, was. She works in this building, which is was a former asylum, was what it was called back in the day. I do find it very interesting, this idea of a place or a building holding memory, um, you know, holding the memories of what has happened there. Is that something that you do buy into? Yes, I do. Very much so. Um, My mother was uh, sensitive to that sort of thing without ever making a fuss about it. For her, the good, the evil, the um, practical and the um, ghostly were all part of the same continuum, as they are for my Aboriginal friends, who also have that sense of place and of its kind of, its memory, its meaning. And um, they talk about, uh, to me, well, that's the old people, old fellow. And, uh, uh, yeah, obviously I agree with them. There's, there's a sensitivity to it. And whatever it is, and I think I ask that question in the book, whatever it is that resides there after the residue of whatever happened here is there. It's still there. There's something awful or there's something benign and welcoming about the atmosphere of a place. Uh, Alex Miller, your novel is called A Brief Affair. Uh, We've talked about Frances Egan being a university academic. She's married. She has two kids. But before the novel begins, she has a brief affair, a one night with a man in China that seems to have changed her forever. Can you tell me a little bit about this affair? What happened? Well, it was my story, really, except I didn't have an affair. I was in China being an eminent artist, they called me. They give you these titles. And uh, I was with another chap who was an eminent scientist. And we were kind of representing Australian culture to the Chinese, travelling around with the um, ambassador and the minister at the time. And um, they were all going to the university, to the big meeting uh, in a minibus from the hotel and I said well I'll I'll just catch an ordinary bus I want to be in China rather than in a bloody minibus again you know looking out the window at China so I did I got on a bus and this chap got on and sat next to me and he was a bit unusual in that the rest of the people on the bus were all looked like sort of standard people out doing their shopping for the groceries and the marketing and that sort of thing and he wasn't he was very still had great sense of gravitas and weight about him. And I was enormously impressed. He was wearing a beautiful suit and um, carried an umbrella. And I thought, God, I must look at this guy. So I turned. He didn't look at me. I turned and looked at him. And um, he had this magnificent profile, which was the profile it struck me. I mean, watching movies on on Chinese history, and there were the wars with the Mongols, and um, he had the face of a Mongol warrior. (laughs) And I was absolutely entranced by him. And eventually, he turned, sensing my interest, he turned and said to me, where do you come from? And I said, I come from Australia. He said, yes, I know you come from Australia. Um, Where in Australia? And I said, well, there's a town in Victoria called Bendigo. I'd actually come from there. I come from a village nearby. What village nearby? Uh, it's, I said, oh, it's called Castlemaine. Do you know Togs? Togs is a famous restaurant in Castlemaine. It was there when Steph and I first arrived there 25 years ago. And it's still there, still thriving. And he had been a visiting professor at La Trobe University in Bendigo for six months. And his hosts had taken him out and around the place on the weekends and going to Castlemaine and Togs was one of the joys of his visit. That is an unbelievable story. <laughs> well, I think, I think I say in the book somewhere, it's one of those coincidences that only happen in real life. It's not something you'd ever make up in a fiction because it's sort of unbelievable, but it actually happened to me. So I gave that coincidence to her, to Frances, who all my characters are always, especially the central characters, are always largely me, transformed in very superficial ways. 
And so Francis meets this man on the bus and they have this one night of passion. Um, Francis at one point thinks of an affair as the oldest story. Uh, And I wanted to know for you, Alex, as a novelist, why is the story of an affair such a compelling story for a writer? I think it was pivotal, that moment in her life. I hadn't planned it and it's just I thought, I've got to get this Mongol fellow in. And he was a Mongol. He came from the interior and um, a proudly Mongol human being and um, beautiful with it. Uh, So I've just got to get him in there. He's offering himself to the book, you know. And uh, it seemed to me that that uh, magical affair that she has with him it's not really i mean i don't you you've read the book thankfully but um later on the title of the book is actually mentioned by valerie the old woman who's 85 she's my age and i know something about her um and she actually says to francis at one stage francis francis life you know it's such a brief affair and at 85 you're in the last chapter I used to call it the death zone, but uh, people didn't like that, so I called it the last <laughs> chapter. In which, uh, but most of us tend to finish up dying in our 80s. Many of us do, and we're lucky to get beyond it, I suppose, if we're still fit and well. But uh, it seems to me to be part of the beautiful melancholy of life that we do have this, if we're fortunate, we do have this final period where we know it's the last chapter, and what are we going to do about that? Are we going to keep pursuing our dreams, our goals, our loves, our hates. Are we still going to go on doing that or are we going to stop suddenly? And uh, I just don't feel like stopping yet. Is it comforting to be in the final chapter and to have this, I don't know, this this period of reflection? Absolutely, yeah. No, that's a really good question. It, it, it can be, I suppose I should say, because it has been and is for me. One of the sort of slightly magical things about my life is the fact that Steph and I have been together nearly 50 years now, 47, eight, coming up to 48 years, and uh, we have a daughter and a son, and our family have gathered around us. They've all come up to Castlemaine. Um, our son bought a farm. He's a banker, um, and uh, he bought a farm with his family, nearby 20 minutes away and um, continues to work for the bank and is happy and they have two beautiful children who are now growing up and um, our daughter came back recently with her new partner and um, yeah they're going to buy a house in Castlemaine. So Steph and I both become surrounded by this huge supportive loving caring family apart from our friends and we have a lot of lovely friends who care about us. So, yeah, it's. I'm not suggesting you're cruising. Uh, that's where you'd, I think, make a mistake. And the mistake would be the quality would have to drop away, the intensity, the ability to find the simplicity in the story, which is always what I'm looking for. How can I shave off so many of these facts, so many of these incidents, and get down to the guts of the story and leave it like that? Not too much said, but enough. You can really hear the passion that you have for storytelling. And in a way, A Brief Affair does really celebrate the importance of reading and writing, of sharing stories. Um, How do you reflect at this point, Alex, on the importance of what you do? You know, writing these stories for other people to sit down and read. Yeah, I think it's very difficult, if not impossible, to assess the value of what you've done. I mean, I had a lovely letter from um, a friend the other day who's a historian And he had pointed out to me that I create these spaces of reflection in my books. And uh, it triggered in me the kind of reminder that when I was young, one of the reasons I was late starting as a novelist, I mean, I wrote short stories and plays and they got performed and published without any trouble. Uh, But I still, I believed then in this inner voice and I believed that that was my my source, my um, subject. And I wanted to go on exploring that, but I didn't have the skills in the early days to um, write about the interior life of, ours, of us 
without encumbering it with all this re- in, uh, sort of reflection. And uh, the books were um, failures. I, I mean, I never got published. They were what uh, Peter Carey has called pre-novels. Mm-hmm. They didn't have the skills yet to really put this, put the story, put the uh, the real subject of your work into the action, to find it in the action and keep the carapace of the action and the story around it so that it was the vehicle of the reader's um, interest and suspense and understanding. It's just, I think, I mean, it's just as true of any genre, I think, really. But do you have that confidence now? I mean, you're so far into your career, you've got two Miles Franklins. Do you sit down now and you know you have the skill to do that, to achieve that? No, I don't. It's each really? uh, book. No, I, wow. I really don't. It sounds silly and it sounds probably as though I'm being falsely modest or some crap like that, but I'm not. Uh, it's a real struggle to find the voice in which this story needs to be told, whatever the story is. And um, I can, I mean, the most ready, in a sense, in my mind story was um, a, a little book I wrote. It's not that little, I suppose. It's called um, Coal Creek, and it's about a young man who gets involved in a criminal sort of pseudo and semi-criminal activity. And um, I sat down and began writing Coal Creek, and 10 weeks later it was done. Um, I just wrote every day and felt the presence of the voice every morning when I got up. It was there, and I thought, it's going to disappear one of those days. It didn't. That was the easiest book I've had to write because the voice was so strong, so compelling. But, you know, finding the story of A Brief Affair, that was another <laughs> long story itself. And um, I've been writing another book for 18 months, I suppose. The Brief Affair was finished about 18 months ago. And the story I'm writing now, I'm still not sure. Have I got the right voice for it or not? I think I might have needed to be lightened, it needed to go into the third person. I've kind of discovered that. And to hold on to the quality and the meaning of the story uh, has been very difficult. I think I'm sort of getting there now. So working all that out uh, and finding within that the inner voices of these people, which need to be there. They need to be under the surface but present to the sensitive reader, or insensitive reader too, I guess. I don't really know any insensitive readers. Everybody reads their own book. And the reviews of um, A A Brief Affair so far, and there have been a heap of them, have all been totally different. They've all been about a different book. Each, Each person has constructed their own story of what this book's about. Some are going to be close to what I thought it was about, and others are going to be off to one side totally. But isn't that the magic of it, that, you know, Absolutely. a book becomes yeah. a different thing for every person who reads it? Yeah. I mean, uh, a book is, you read your own story. Yeah. And I'm so glad I read this one. It's called A Brief Affair. It's by Alex Miller and it's published by Alan and Unwin. Alex, thank you. Thank you, Claire. You're listening to The Book Show, where Patricia Cornwall is still to come. But let's talk about historical fiction for a moment. Uh, You might remember that last time it was an all-historical fiction show, and it is such a popular genre. And the historical fiction novelist has a really tricky task. Uh, They have to decide how much of the known facts about a period to keep while also creating an engaging story. That can get even harder when they take on a little-known corner of history where the facts have been lost or maybe skewed. The book show's producer, Sarah Lestrange, is looking at how authors negotiate this grey area between fact and fiction. The world is stirring when we born. Turn of the century, massa call it. Him say is a world full of possibility, of sights yet unseen. This is the evocative beginning of the novel Master of My Fate, about the real-life William Buchanan, a convict who was transported to Australia from Jamaica after his involvement in a slave rebellion. 
didn't know that Stella, my mama, still deciding if she going to keep me or kill me. She just turned 19, late for her first Pickney slave woman. In this debut novel, writer and filmmaker Sienna Brown takes the reader for a deep dive into William Buchanan's life, beginning with his birth in 1800, that's what you heard there. But Sienna Brown's interest in his life began while she was working as a guide at Hyde Park Barracks in Sydney. And as I was there, I was doing a lot of research and wondered, I wonder if there are people like me who got transported as a Jamaican woman of colour. The answer was yes, and what began as a research interest became this novel, charting a 50-year trajectory of his life from slavery in Jamaica to being a convict in Australia. And while there were many gaps in the record, Sienna also had a lot to go on. What was wonderful, and it's only in looking back now that I actually realised how much I did have, you know, because I had newspaper articles, I had the slave register, there was the actual transcripts of uh, sent in Parliament that described the actual rebellion. Um, there were trial transcripts that I found uh, at the research centre in Kent. So there was a lot of information that I then sort of put on a bit of a timeline and plucked those main events out and then actually wrote around those events. But of course, you can't just write a novel from facts. Sienna found that there was a lot of information she needed that was beyond the scope of the record. So I had to come up with what was he like at five? What was he like at 15? What was he like at 25? What was happening there? So the backstory, if you like, or the subtext of his story had to be invented. This gets to the crux of the challenge. How does a historical novelist deal with this subtext? What are the rules of engagement? <laughs> um, I, I think the rules of engagement are that there is a fair bit of latitude to do as you please, but that you have to be honest with the reader. So the reader has to understand what it is that you're up to. And if you're going to move things around, if you're going to falsify or change things for creative reasons, that is available to the writer, but you have to explain it to the reader in some way or other. Jock Sarong, whose latest book, The Settlement, completes his trilogy focused on Tasmania's Ferno Islands. In writing this historical series, Jock has thought deeply about his relationship to history, and he says he likes to think of history as pillars. My job was stringing fairy lights between the pillars, but that the pillars had to remain in place. I'm not going to go moving pillars around. Um, and the fairy lights, as long as the reader understands that the fairy lights are me guessing at the stuff in between pillars, then I, I think we have something of a compact between us. In his moving and devastating novel, The Settlement, Jock takes the reader to the Waibalina Aboriginal settlement on Flinders Island. This is in the Bass Strait. And it was a destination of misery, devised by one man. A missionary called George Augustus Robinson's attempt to take the surviving Tasmanian Aboriginal people, who we refer to as the Palawa and Pakana people, to a safe refuge to get them away from a genocide that was going on on mainland Tasmania. And um, that enterprise was a disaster. And the reasons why it was a disaster and the implications for, for modern history, for modern Tasmanian Aboriginal people, are not widely discussed. And I feel like it's a very important part of Australian history that we haven't talked enough about. And George Augustus Robinson wrote down everything. Now, this is a primary resource, so a good place to anchor your historical novel. The conundrum here is that Robinson himself, who's my major source, this is a man who kept enormous diaries of everything that he did. A lot of the time he's lying. And academic historians will see this as completely unremarkable. They'll say to you that the sources lie all the time and that there is no such thing as a bedrock of truth that you can go back to. Um, but Robinson is a classic propagandist. He wants history to see him well. And that means that you have to read him really carefully and sceptically the whole time. Um, and I quite enjoyed that game of trying to get inside what Robinson was up to. Here we have a case where the historical record is already skewed. What happens when the historical record is so sterile? All a novelist can do is fill in the gaps. 
wanted to write historical fiction because I'm interested in the interior lives of people who were not covered by history books. Eleanor Limprick's latest historical novel, The Coast, is about a real-life leprosy hospital in Sydney. It's about their isolation there, how the patients are kept there by the Australian government, and it's about the fear of leprosy at the time. And honours the forgotten stories of its patients by stepping into the lives of fictional patients, mother and daughter Clea and Alice, Jack, an Indigenous man, and Will, a devoted doctor at the hospital. The idea came from actual medical records that I came across in the Royal Australian College of Physicians Library. There were records kept, anonymous records of patients who went to the Lazarette at the Coast Hospital. And there were multiple generations of a single family from the Lismore region. So I was fascinated by this idea that multiple generations of the same family end up in this terrible situation. For many people, reading the coast will be their first exposure to Australia's treatment of people with leprosy. A lot of people who have grown up in that area have come to me and said, I've heard about this history, but I've never read about it anywhere. And Eleanor Limprecht tells me that people with leprosy were even segregated in death and were buried in separate cemeteries. Such was the fear of the disease. And this really gets to the challenge of writing about the history of leprosy in Australia. It's already marked by prejudice and misunderstanding. Well, the historical record is very scant. It's very much this patient had the symptoms and it was a nine-year-old girl who was this many inches tall and weighed this much. And it's not enough to really record a human life, I think. We're so much more complex than that. I find that the records of institutions from these times are sometimes the only places we see people who lived on the fringes of society. But what we have of them is so scant that, you know, it's the imagination that has to come up with the rest of it. Often in writing history, the loudest voices get rewarded. And they're not always the voices that are going to give you the richest understanding of the events. Back to Jock Sarong. You've heard this idea before, haven't you? The victor writes the history. But with this knowledge in mind, Jock Sarong gets creative in the settlement and in the process he upends a common historical narrative style that has favoured the colonisers' perspective in the past. I have reversed the usual process that I always saw reading Australian history where you had the named settlers, so you had Major Mitchell on his horse, and at the horse's feet on the ground is an Aborigine who is left generic, you don't have a name. So in the novel, I have given all of the Palawa and Pakana people their names and, and where possible their um, nation of origin and whatever else I could provide. And I've left the white people generic. Um, so they're referred to by their occupations. There's the commandant, there's the surveyor, there's the surgeon, um, the catechist. And um, it was a really interesting thought exercise that I think often you do these things in early drafts and you, you look at them and see whether they worked or whether they looked gimmicky. Um, and in this case, I felt like it was really driving at something quite interesting. So it, it survived all the edits and it's still there. Historical fiction can surprise and challenge the reader, but it can also surprise the writer. And this gives us insight into why historical fiction can be so powerful. While writing the story of the Jamaican convict and slave William Buchanan in Master of My Fate, Sienna Brown unexpectedly became invested in the life of William's mother, Stella. Stella, for some reason, her, her bravery, her strength, her ability to live in two worlds because she's the master's lover and she's the slave mother and also you know, works on the plantation. And when I did discover what had happened to her, I, I felt this incredible loss. I really had to grieve for my character and consider that was, you know, almost 180 years ago. Here was I having this impact, this emotional impact based on, on a character that was half fact, half fiction. 
And in fact, I stopped writing for at least three or four months. I couldn't write. I, I was, and I realized in retrospect, I was grieving. I wonder if Eleanor Limprecht also felt this sadness writing about a forgotten pocket of the history of leprosy in Australia. I only feel lighter having written about it because I feel like I've sort of brought a little bit of it out into, you know, discussion, into conversation. So I do think that historical fiction also allows people who wouldn't usually engage with that history to engage with it in a different way. Maybe that's why we write historical fiction. It allows us to empathise and discover the ways that our ancestors used to live in the world. Because historical fiction novelists connect with their characters, as we've heard, they must by necessity move beyond the historical record in their writing, all the while observing the rules of engagement. There's a lot of wriggle room in between. Sarah Lestrange. She was with Sienna Brown, Jock Sarong and Eleanor Limprecht. Details of their books can be found on the Book Show website. And now it is time for you to meet Patricia Cornwall, the woman behind the unstoppable forensic investigator Kay Scarpetta. Patricia has been writing her Scarpetta novel since 1991. I actually remember first reading them as a teenager. And now Patricia is back with the 26th novel in the series. It's called Livid. Patricia Cornwell, welcome. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, You've got this great video online where you show us all the cool things you've learned in your research for Kay Scarpetta. There's a video of you shooting guns and flying helicopters. Why is it so important for you to do this very physical research for your books? Well, you know, it it isn't just physical because it's also all the other things that, that I'm constantly looking into, but it all comes back to the same answer, which is no matter how much you might like to write, you've got to have a story to tell. And so I make a very concerted effort to create things and to do things that give me ideas and give me something to talk about. Um, otherwise, I, I don't know how I could you know, continue writing all these books. It, it probably also relates to my starting out as a journalist. I was, you know, you you go and and research something, or you show up where an event has occurred, and you ask people questions, and and that's how you weave something together, and that's also how you figure out what happened. And I don't know about you, but I get curious about stuff. I want to know what happened. <laughs> What's the uh, coolest thing you've learned or done in your research for Kay Scarpetta? Probably the coolest thing is learning to fly helicopters. You know, and that is, I, I got my license in 1999, so uh, it's something that's been with me for, and it's I, I'm, it's one of the hardest things, I mean, that I learned to do, because it, it's pretty darn scary at times when you, uh, especially when you solo, and the first time that you, you realize you're taken off and there's nobody in that helicopter but you, and you've got to go fly here and there, and I thought, oh my God, I don't know if I can do this, and so... I'd have to tell you, it's just the most incredible feeling when you're I, I, when you're flying. Um, I was just flying through the Blue Ridge Mountains a couple of weeks ago, and as you're flying over these mountain ranges, and you just feel like you're floating, sort of, and it's just a magical, and it makes you think about nothing else for a while. So that's a real set. That's been a special treat that I was so fortunate as to get to learn to do that. And, you know, also, you know, you're learning about the technicality of flying a helicopter, but also, you know, talking about that that fear, I mean, that's something that you can really channel into your writing too, isn't it? Well, yes, because it, it you're doing things that make you uncomfortable, that push you beyond your limits. And if you do that in life, it's going to affect your art. It's going to affect everything. So it's just really uh, important to do that. And, you know, when you think about why does somebody pick up a book, they want to be transported. They want a story to take them somewhere. 
and they want a journey that they're glad they took it after the fact, as opposed to, well, that was, I killed some time, but you know, I wouldn't read that again. That's what you don't want somebody saying. Um, you want somebody that they've gone on a journey and they're a different person for it. They've, they have a different perspective. They've learned something new. They've thought something that they haven't thought of. And in fact, they might've thought so about something in your story that you didn't even think of. And it becomes interactive in a weird way like that. And I just think that that's what I want to do. That's what I try to do. And, and, and I don't know how I can take you on a helicopter ride in one of my books if I've never been in one myself um, or done something that, that is close enough that I can describe it in a way that's believable. Mm. The other thing you do, of course, in these books is take us into the morgue with Kay Scarpetta. Um, when was the first time uh, you saw a, a body in a morgue? Do you remember that moment? I do. It was uh, it was probably very early 1985, and I just started trying to do research at the medical examiner's office in Richmond. And I said try because uh, th there was a limit as to what they would let me do, even way way back then when they're not at all the limits that there are today. And the, um, basically, the medical examiner, Dr. Fierro, who who is my friend still, I just talked to her the other day. She was doing. Um, a police demonstration autopsy. You know, you have the rookies come in and they watch their first autopsy. And she's the one who had told me when I said, look, I want to watch an autopsy. And she said, um, quote, they're not spectator sports. You can't just come watch an autopsy. I said, I know, I understand the importance and the sacredness of it, actually. I said, but I need to see it. I can't possibly write about something like this if I've never had any experience in it. And she said, well, go do something to give yourself some legitimacy. And I said, well, like what? She says, well, they have a volunteer police program in the city, go do that. So next time I walked in the office, I was wearing a uniform. <laughs> I said, now will you let me watch one? So she let me do the police demo autopsy, um, which was not gonna be a criminal case or something like that. It was an elderly person who had died unattended by a physician, a rather low key case, uh, not that it was a happy thing because nothing is, but I came into the autopsy suite and when I walked through the door, I literally bumped into the gurney that the body was on. And for a minute, I felt this little wavering in my knees because that was the first time I'd been that close to a, a dead body. And I remember the most important thing that Dr. Fierro said to the police who were gathered around that table in terms of how they were to manage. She said, don't get fixated on anything because you, you get that. She can always tell. Um, in fact, you, you can always tell someone gets that thousand yard stare, but they're looking at something and that's when they're going to hit the floor. So that was uh, I did. OK, I managed it. I um, I learned early on in order to be able to see these things and get involved in it to the extent I did. I just tried to look at it from the point of view of the medical examiner. You know, why are they here? What are they looking for? What is this about as opposed to the gore factor? Um, in other words, looking at it more as a physician would. And that was always, it's always been my approach when I go and do these things for real. Mm. And really, you are credited with starting this interest in forensic investigation stories. You know, there might not be a CSI TV series without Kay Scarpetta. Uh, when you created this character, uh, did you ever imagine she would stay with you for so long? I never really thought about it. You know, when I wrote Postmortem, I, I, I was done with it and I thought, well, I guess, and it was making the rounds to see if anybody would take it. And so I thought I better start another one because that's just what I did. And so I started writing body of evidence and literally I didn't know till she till a cop car rolled up in her in Scarpetta's parking lot and the window rolled down and Marino was sitting in the driver's seat. And I thought, oh, I guess you're back for the next one too. And I had, you know, I never thought about how long this was gonna keep going. I mean, when it started becoming really successful, that became a little bit more of a preoccupation because of contracts and thinking ahead. But by and large, uh, I've just always tried to, is there a next story? And if so, what is it? And, and let me go see what I can find out about that to see what ideas I get. And that's what I do. And you hope that it, 
it, it sort of quickens, it takes life, takes root. Um, and I never know in the early stages, you know, whether something is, I keep, I'll work on it, work on it until one day I realize it's taking on a life of its own and it's beginning to be alive. It's a, it's a weird thing. It's almost like I'm, I'm having these literary children. <laughs> Um, You know, I was speaking to uh, Ian Rankin a few weeks ago, and he's been writing his Rebus novels for 35 years. He told me about the challenge he faces of his character ageing in real time. Um, You've gone in a bit of a different direction with Kay Scarpetta, right? Like, How how old is she now? Um, She doesn't discuss it, but what she, uh, you know, she quit ageing probably about at least probably about 10 years before I did. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Because it's still going on with me, but she's definitely younger than I am. Um, I kind of leave her in the, what I would call the 50-ish range. I mean, it could be anything this day and age, because by the way, it's really what people do with themselves and and their determination and whether they want to keep on going. I mean, age is definitely a reality, but it's also relative. That's true. And I guess for a novelist, you know, um, Rankin was talking to me about the fact that, you know, he retired Rebus from the detectives and then had to figure out what to do with him for the next six books. You keeping her in this kind of nebulous age range means she can keep on working as long as you need her to. Well, I just don't, I just don't ever age her. I mean, in Hollywood, they'll do the same. I mean, it's, uh, it, it just will be what the story needs. And people can imagine these characters at for any age that they want to really. I mean, I've, I've learned to be a little less specific about some of these things, because whether it's age, race, um, a lot of things. I try to be less specific so that people, the characters can be what anybody wants them to be. Yeah. So the new book is called Livid. Um, for this book, Patricia Cornwall, you've been learning a lot about microwave energy. Um, what can you tell me about microwave energy? Well, like so many things in this world, what can be used for good can be used for bad and can be weaponized. And um, and, and we've had this happen um, around the world, something that's called the Havana Syndrome, where um, people were attacked at an embassy in Havana, Cuba. And for a while, a long time, people weren't sure it was real, these symptoms they were having, what was wrong with them. Long story short, you can anybody can look this up. This is a real phenomenon where microwave energy is used to attack people. And um, it it can be fired through a building, through a window. The things that will block it are things like window screens that are metal, um, something that will will, will stop those microwaves from hitting the target. Um, And you'll learn all about this in the book because that's the thing that I'm dealing with is that basically people who've been attacked with this sort of thing, including in the, our capital in Washington, they'll be walking away from, to their car, for example, and suddenly they find themselves on the pavement and they think they've had a stroke. And some of these people have permanent brain damage and other problems. And it took a while to figure out what was going on. But it's, it's the unseen world that you also have to be careful of, whether it's a virus or electromagnetic energy. Um, people don't realize how much energy is is all around us in various wavelengths that we don't see, um, and you can, and, and by the way, uh, people are learning to make these microwave weapons in their own homes now. I'm thinking of something kind of like a, a ray gun from a sci-fi movie. Am I kind of off track there? Well, eventually, things that, that's exactly what this will be. It will get smaller. Um, what they'll, they'll figure out ways to have power sources for the microwave energy that are small enough that could be put conceivably like in a handgun size thing. And then you are getting into the days of ray guns because that's what you're talking about. Um, and it's, it's a really scary thought. I have done some reading up on Havana syndrome and I should say there is a bit of controversy about what causes um, the Havana syndrome. Um, There has been the finding, as you say, that this is caused by magnetic energy. Um, Others believe that this could be some sort of mass psychogenic illness. Um, But certainly for your purposes, um, magnetic energy is a really compelling idea. And I'm keen to know at what point um, in reading and learning about this do you think, oh, yes, this is going to be in a book? Well, 
it's it's it, it could be anything. I mean, I I I'm fortunate that I have friends who work in the real fields, whether cyber investigators for the Secret Service and the Secret Service in particular are well aware of these microwave weapons because they have to guard against these when they're imagine a, a convoy. Um, a motorcade going down a road and someone's got a van parked to the side and they're firing something like this at a motorcade. And, and the, the people who are running alongside the cars and all the rest of it, it could be devastating. And so they have to know and, and they are real. And this is real. It's not mass hysteria. I mean, right, microwaves have been used for years by the military for crowd dispersion and things like that. Uh, because you suddenly, you know, you feel this terrible pain in your head or whatever. So I wish it weren't real. And, and fortunately, it's not something that you and I probably have to worry about unless somebody went to a lot of trouble and wanted to target somebody with something like this. But it could happen and you should be aware of it and know what to do if something like that were occurring. I mean, the biggest thing is get behind something metal. You know, you did have me last night, Patricia, in my kitchen thinking, what would happen if someone fired this through my window right now? What would I do? Window screens are your friend. With postmortem, locking the windows was what everybody started doing. With Livid, you will want window screens. Um, and believe it or not, a lot of construction materials now are taking this sort of thing into account. And they can make wallpapers and all kinds of fabrications that have protections built into it that go right into construction to, uh, you know, embassies and things like that have been doing that for a while. Well, look, here in Australia, we have a lot of fly screens on our windows, so maybe we're a little bit safer here. Um, in this yeah. book, um, a woman's body is found in this old house out of town, and Kay immediately suspects that this is murder by microwave energy. She suspects it even before she goes inside the house and sees the body. Why does she already know that this is what it is? Well, and I don't want to give any spoilers away, but, but, you know, in terms of stuff that she finds, but suffice it to say that if you know science and you know what something will do and you know what electromagnetic radio waves, um, uh, microwaves, uh, you know, you know physically what they do and how it works or, or how anything that conducts electricity, for example, works. Um, you know, why does something heat up for, and why, why does something else not heat up? And there's all these reasons for it. And so she would know, for example, she's going to recognize other collateral damage. If somebody's firing a weapon from some distance away at somebody's window, um, there's going to be other things that happen along the way as that energy is traveling to its target. And she would recognize some of the signs that are really creepy, by the way. It's like something out of a horror movie. Um, she would also know what is going to happen to that person and why their body might be in the position it's in or why the clothing or jewelry or other things might be arranged or, or appear the way they do. Um, she's going to recognize a lot of things that will add up to um, equaling this type of situation. Um, and she's also, it's, it's, it's not that dissimilar to what happens in a lightning strike. And she knows a lot about that too, because she's worked those kind of cases. So her experience would kick in. And this is a good rule of thumb for anybody. If she looks for everything along the way, you don't want to have to turn around and go back and, and find out that you should have started looking sooner. She is just so clever. I feel so safe <laughs> when Kay Scuffin is on the case. Um, there's another aspect to this story too. The book actually opens with Kay Scarpetta on the witness stand. Um, she's testifying in a very controversial case. And this case is um, it's stirring up a lot of emotions in the town where she lives. We've got this kind of threat of mob violence um, resonating through this book. People are unhappy about what's happening in this court case. They want justice for the victim of a crime. But something happens, Patricia, and that is that these unhappy people seem to attract other unhappy people. This mob kind of grows and suddenly we're seeing Confederate flags flying. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't help but think of stories we've seen come out of the US and even here in Australia, you know, in, in the years of COVID, where unhappy people seem to attract other unhappy people and it all gets a bit scary. It's very scary because after a while, some of these people don't even know why they're there. I mean, they don't, they're just there. 
And I think that happened. Uh, I think that we've seen a lot of that sort of thing where they might be drawn for one reason. And then after a while, they attract other people and not everybody. They're, they're just there because they're there and they want to be there. And and that kind of mob mentality is, is really, really scary. And um, and yes, we have been seeing our share of that in the United States. And we are in very perilous times. And there's no way that I could write a Scarpetta book today and not reflect that. Even in an autopsy, the one before Livid, you know, I was I was pointing out some of the things, the threats that that we deal with out there and the the civil unrest. And now in a Livid, you really see it because she's right outside of Washington. And you know, this domestic terrorism and how it connects to international terrorism is very real. And, and the Russians and those who would like to completely destabilize democracy, the quickest and most sure way to do that is do it from within. Have, have your own people be the ones that overthrow your government. And um, I'm, I'm not being dramatic when I say I, I'm, I'm worried about such a thing. And I, I hope that a year from now, we're having a pleasant conversation and not, not as worried about it as I am now. Yeah. Um, and I'm guessing the Capitol riots in from January 6th also probably would have influenced you including this in the book. It's horrifying. And all of this has an impact on Scarpetta. Um, you know, public servants are at much more risk than they used to be. When I when I worked for medical examiners, you know, I worked for the medical examiner's office long ago. You didn't see these cases of judges and prosecutors and, and others who become targets in the public just for doing their jobs. And we're seeing a lot of that in the United States and people who are murdered or threatened or they have to get security. And and so Scarpetta is in a very treacherous world. And um, and I'm, I'm trying, I wanna show that for what it is, but at the same time, I'm not being political and I'm, I'm not preaching or I'm just trying to give you a great tale, a great story, but I'm not going to waste your time with something that's frivolous either. Patricia Cornwell, uh, Livid is your 26th Scarpetta novel. Um, you, you generally write one a year. There's been a couple of breaks, but how how easy is it for you to write these? When you sit down at the at the writing desk, is this is this pleasurable? Is it easy? What's it like? It's never easy. And when I first walk in, it's, it reminds me of, of when I used to play tennis as a kid when I was practicing all the time for tournaments. And when I first walk out on the court early in the morning, nobody much around and there's still dew on the court and it's kind of cool, you know, chilly. That's what I feel like. Uh, I remember and I would be nervous, a little bit nervous and kind of wishing I weren't there. Like, oh, please let it rain and maybe I can go home. But once I start getting into it, that's I've, I felt like that's where I belonged. And that's the way I feel about writing. When I first approach it, I'm almost hoping somebody will tell me I can play hooky today and I don't have to do it. Maybe it's going to snow and I can't get to the office, which of course isn't true because I just walked there um, down the hallway, really. But once I get there, it's where I feel like I belong. But it's not easy. And sometimes it doesn't go well. (laughs) I'm never as quick at it as I want to be. And you would think after all this time I could do it in my sleep, but I'm not. It's just as hard for me now, really, as it ever was. Well, I'm glad you're still doing it. Uh, Patricia Cornwall, it's been great to meet you today. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it too, Claire. And your latest book is Livid. It's published by Sphere. This has been the book show made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Wajak Noongar people. I'm Claire Nichols and drumroll, George Saunders will be here next week. Until then, take care. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.